And we're about to engage together in the reading of the word of God. If you can go ahead and get situated, go ahead and get situated. Um, we're going to be in second Kings chapter 11. Um, and, and we're just going to continue what we've been doing, which is just reading through the entire scripture, 20 to 30 minutes at a time. Um, this is a time of reflection. It is a time of meditation, uh, a time of reflection, a time of uh, uh, retrospection as we read the scriptures. We're not simply looking to exegete the text, but to allow the text to exegete us, to allow the text to really help us discover the character and the heart of God, but also to discover what in us needs to be transformed and to be changed as well. Um, what we do is, is we're reflecting and in reflecting, what we're doing is, is we're asking three questions. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? God, what are you revealing concerning people? And God, what are you revealing concerning me? Discern me. And when we posture ourselves that way, we more appropriately receive really what the Lord has to say to us in this day in our reading of the word. Remember that this scripture is not an intellectual text but rather the scripture is a spiritual text. Every time you read this word, it is an opportunity for spiritual transmission. If you would allow your spirit to receive what the Lord has to say, and he could say something different to each and every one of us. And yet, isn't it powerful that we can all engage together and God can encounter us in different ways. And that's what we want to do today. And so you're eavesdropping today. You're eavesdropping on my time of reflection, on my time of meditation in the word. And, and that's what we're coming to do here. Um, and let's get right to it. Let's get right into it. Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege once more to come together, to gather in your name. Lord, we have people from all over, people from different areas of the world who are coming together. Some of them right now are just waking up. Some people uh, woke up in the middle of the night to be a part of this. Some people um, are at lunch. Some people are about to go to sleep and go to bed. And so this is their time of spiritual nourishment. So, Father, I ask today that you nourish us. Lord, nourish us in your word. Speak to us, Lord. Reveal the truth of your word to us, Lord God. Lord, as we engage in it, and we ask that in your name we pray. Amen. Second Kings chapter 11. I will read, and I pray that you guys read and listen along with me. And it says this, in verse 1. When Atalia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom in Atalia so that he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years, and Atalia reigned over the land. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and the escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath with them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, saying, This is what you shall do. One third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's house. One third shall be at the gate of Sir, and one third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep watch of the house, lest it be broken down. 
The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. And you shall surround the king on all sides. Let every man with his weapons in his hand. And whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. So the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who were with, who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off on oh, sorry off duty on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave the captains of the hundreds of spears and the shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. Then the escort stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar and the house. Then he brought out the king's son, put a crown on him, and gave him the testimony. They made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Now when Atalia heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar, according to custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Atalia tore her clothes and cried out, Treason! Treason! And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside under the guard, and slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her and went by way of the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They thoroughly broke in it, it sorry, they thoroughly broke it in pieces, its altars and images, and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars, and the priests appointed officers over the house of the Lord. Then he took the captains of hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by the way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Atalia with the sword in the king's house. Joash was seven years old when he became king. Chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibia of Beersheba. Joash, or Jehoash, sorry, Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest instructed him. But the high priests were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts which were brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that, the, that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple, wherever any dilapidation is found. Now it was so by the twentieth year, by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, 
that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages to the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the, from the people, nor repair the damages of the temple. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bore a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar. On the right side, as one comes into the house of the Lord, and the priest who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So it was. Whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave the money, which had been apportioned into the hand of those who did the work, who had oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord. Hmm. And to the masons and stonecutters, and for buying timber and hewed stones to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, for all that was paid out to repair the temple. However, they were not made for the house of the Lord, basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold and silver, uh, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. Goodness. The money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Then Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his father Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things and all the gold found in the treasures of the house of the Lord and in the king's house and set them to Hazael, king of Syria. Then he went away from Jerusalem. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Judah? And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of Milo, which goes down in Silla. For Jozakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servant, struck him. So he died, and they buried him from his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, the son, reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. <laughs> then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and, in the, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before.
Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria, for he left the army of Jehoaz, only fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at the threshing. Now at the acts of Jehoaz, all that he did, and all his might, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Israel, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil on the side of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow, sorry, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of the deliverance of, from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Ephek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands of Moab invaded the land in the spring of that year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. And Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. And the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. So Hazael, king of Syria, died. Now when he died, then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Joash, the son of Jehoaz, recaptured from the, uh, from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz from his father by war. Three times Joash defeated him and captured the cities of Israel. It's a lot here. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 
29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehodan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet not like his father David, he did everything as his father Joash had done. Hmm. However, the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. But the children of the murderers he did not execute, according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children shall be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He took Selah by war and called its name Jokthiel till this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. And Jehoash, king of Israel, said to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, That thistle was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stayed at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? <clears throat> Sorry. But Amaziah would not heed. Therefore, Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel and every man fled to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah and the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasury of the king's house and the hostages and returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, which he did, he might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, lived 15 years after Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem and fled to Lachish. But they sent after him in Lachish to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him to on horses and, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David and all the people of Judah took Azariah who was 16 years old and made him king instead of his father Amaziah and built Elath and restored it to Judah <laughs> after the king rested with his fathers. In the 15th year, Amaziah, uh, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Syria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amatai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer, 
from the Lord saw the affliction of Israel and was very bitter. And with a bond or free, there was no helper in Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war and how he recaptured Israel from Damascus to Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old, and when he became king, he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. As his fathers had done, he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jebesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed, they were written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 30th, 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up to Terzah, came to Samaria, and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom, in the conspiracy which he led, indeed were written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then from Terzah, from Menahem, attacked Tifsa, all who were there and its territory, because they did not surrender. Therefore he attacked it. All the women who were with child, he ripped open. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel, reigned 10 years in Samaria. He did evil on the side of the Lord. He did not depart <clears throat> all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Paul, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Paul a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers and Pekahiah, 
the son reigned in his place. In the 15th year of Azariah, king of G Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. And Pekah, the son of Remalah, an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Are. With him were fifty men of Gilead, and he killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of Pekahiah and all that he did indeed, they were written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the fifth, in the fifty-second year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remalah became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 20 years. And he did evil on the side of the Lord, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath, Peleser, the king of Assyria, came and took Ejon, Abel, Beth, Machah, Janoath, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. Then Hosea, the son of Ella, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramelah, and struck and killed him. So he reigned in this place in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now, the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, they were written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramelah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And he built the upper gate on the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, against Judah. Then Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. so glad to see all of you um i'm so glad you guys are all here and you are attending with me um as we spend time in the reading of the word of god we've been journeying now through the entire scripture we're journeying from genesis all the way to revelation we actually started from matthew and read all the way to revelation and then we came back around to Genesis, to read Genesis all the way through. And the purpose for it is not, not specifically for educational purposes, but more specifically for the spiritual activity of equipping yourself and being built up to be edified and strengthened spiritually in the reading of the word. The most important endeavor, and I love that that you guys are are reading this along with me, and that you're seeing, you know, you guys are getting a little peek into 
my daily discipline. I'm letting you eavesdrop into my daily discipline of reading the word. There are many ways to read the word. You can read it from a meditational posture and you can read it from a from an instructional academic posture. Both are great. Both are good. But one is more important. You can read the scriptures from a an instructional academic intellectual posture gain lots of information and yet it doesn't change anything in you it doesn't transform you case in point there are many great teachers of scripture who are crappy people <laughs> um, there are great uh, teachers of scripture who know the bible very well and yet you question whether or not they even know Jesus because again knowing the word is not enough you have to eat the word <laughs> That's what the scriptures tell us, that we ought to eat the word. And you cannot eat the word with your intellectual facility. It is spiritual food. Jeremiah says, your words came and I ate them and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And I have been called by your name. You have to eat the word, consume the word. There's one thing to hide the word in your heart. That is memorization of scripture. But there's another thing to allow the word to take root in you. The word is seed. Even Jesus uses this image of the word being seed. When the seed is thrown, then the soil then takes the seed and does what it does with the seed. If you are um, thorny soil, if you are a wayside soil, if you are, you know, depending on the kind of soil that you are, determines how the word bears fruit. And I think for many believers, if you allow me to rant, because we're going to read and then I'm going to rant and and just allow me to rant for a moment. But if you're, if there, if there's no fruit from your reading of the word, and when I talk about fruit, I'm not talking about your ability to memorize scripture and and know different parts of scripture, but to see actual fruit and transformation from your life, then you have to ask yourself the question: Are you reading it appropriately? Let me say that one more time: Are you reading it appropriately? Because there are theologians who are atheists. I'll go as far as saying that there are many Christians who really are just repressed atheists. They got nowhere else to go. They love the community, so they stay there. Sorry if I said it. But there are Christians who they're good with the culture of Christianity. You know, they'll go to church on Sunday. They'll do the, the church thing. You know, their parents, they'll send their kids to, you know, uh, you know, to, to kids men. So that way they get some time away and just spend some time together. And so it becomes like a little daycare for them. And, then you know, it's kind of like this thing that we do. You know, we just do this thing on Sunday. You know what I mean? Like we just kind of go to church and, and we kind of do this thing. And then I love the community, too. The community's great. And that's all good stuff. But you can't tell me you've been in church for 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. And yet all you get from church is that it's a great community. Yeah, cultural Christians. I call them I call them atheist Christians. Christianity, I'm sorry, is uh, an institution now that almost doesn't even need Christ in it. As long as you got a good show, a good speaker, a good sermon, a good presentation, you know, you're you're good to go. <laughs> you're good to go. And yet that's the problem is that even as pastors, we wow, Christian cosplay. Wow, that's tough. Um there are you know, as pastors, we do a disservice to the body of Christ when we simply go up and disseminate intellectual information to the congregation, not teaching them what true discipleship is. Sorry if I rant one more time. The church's objective is not to is not salvations. 
Let me say that one more time. The church's objective is not conversions. That's the problem now, is that the church is satisfied with somebody just checking off on a box that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. The church's objective is actually not even the identification of being a Christian. That is not the church's objective. Sorry if I speak it. The church's objective is to make disciples. Jesus did not say, go ye therefore and make Christians. Jesus said, go ye therefore and make disciples. Find it often that we have people who are great at being Christians, but are not very good at being disciples. Christianity is a club that you're a part of. The disciple is a transformed identity, a transformed being. It is you being transformed in Christ. And here's the reality is that making Christians is a lot easier than making disciples. Making Christians is a lot easier than making disciples because you can make a Christian by simply giving them doctrine. Give them a few doctrinal positions, a few things to believe so they can be part of this Christian club. And once they're part of this Christian club, then it's all good. You get to, you're in. You get to become a member now. I went to a church one time where the pastor, literally the altar call was, come become a member of our church. That was the altar call. Because the reality is that many people are simply club Christians, cultural Christians. They actually don't know Jesus but they know as a preacher and a pastor. And many of us have grown up in those contexts where we were never challenged to actually have a relationship with Christ. We were never really challenged to do that. What we were, what we were called to do is simply come to Sunday school, go to Bible study, go to small group, get a little bit of a word in, but we're still culturally, we're, we're still culturally, um, there's a cultural deviation, but it's still, there's a cultural congruence. Yeah, we're Christian, but, you know, (laughs) sorry if I put this out. I put all this out because this is what compels me as I read this text is if we're not postured in a way to receive spiritually what the word has for us. Like if the word isn't discerning you and convicting you and transforming you, if you're sitting there teaching believers to simply understand what it says, you're missing it. (laughs) There's There's a verse in the Bible which I find peculiarly written. It's written in a very peculiar way and yet we often interpret it in a, in a, in a, in an inappropriate and inaccurate way. It says, faith comes by hearing the word of God. That is not what the scripture says. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's a difference, family. That the hearing comes by the word of God. The hearing comes by the word. That is, the word is the conduit by which we hear. We're hearing through the word and we're hearing with the word. And by hearing through and with the word, then it cultivates the faith that then transforms us. We don't get faith by just hearing the word of God. We get faith when we collaborate with the word of God. I'm giving you insight here because what today's church culture is consumed with is a remnant of faith in Jesus Christ, but not an actual, pure, powerful, authentic expression of the power of God through the people of God. 
And yet when we read this text, this is what we're, this is what should be convicting us. I know you guys have been reading. If you guys miss it, you miss it. Go back and watch the other reading rants. I know yesterday's episode was a little, you know, awkward because, you know, we were cut out. And, and even the, the one that I posted on, on the Patreon for you guys, it wasn't really the full thing. And I, and I feel that it's important at least to bring context to what I said yesterday to help you understand today that if God, if the general theme in the story of the scripture Ready? In the story of the scripture, the transmission of the spirit of God to our spirit, his spirit, testifying to our spirit through the mechanism of the word of God. If that is the word itself and the story of the scripture, the grand narrative of what God is doing, then what we should get out of all of this is that this is about the kingdom of God. Oh, get ready, JJ. I'm going to get there in a minute. I'm going to get there in a minute that this is about the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is a kingdom that was fractured from the beginning when Adam chose his rule over God's rule. And yet from Adam on, God has been working towards reestablishing his justice. And so this story is a story of God reestablishing his justice and establishing his rule. It's about him becoming king. It's a kingship, a reestablishing of order to all things because all things in the world are broken through humanity. We've seen now that as he's establishing this kingdom, this kingdom first started off as a family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Now this family has become a community. These 12 sons now become a nation in, in Egypt and now they become a nation and they become a nation and this nation now gets called out of Egypt Moses leads them out of Egypt makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai gives them the law that shapes them out to become a nation that is distinct from every other nation to be now the kingdom that nobody has seen and now this nation is going into a land that has been promised to them because this nation needs to occupy a land and by occupying that land, it's a, it is a, a reinstituting of Eden because now if the people of God can come into covenant with God, into unity with God, we would have the, the, the full expression of Eden when mankind was in covenant with God. Ah, but then they get to this land that was promised to them. They subdued the land. The Canaanites ruled the land, but now the Israelites subdued the land. And while they subdued the land, this kingdom was not established as God had intended. No, 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 no. These people didn't want God to be king. They wanted a king. Judges proves that, that there was no king in Israel and yet God was king. Because this was always about his kingdom, but it says there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so now, so now they fall into this, this, this complete moral decline. And, and you find now Israel in this moral depravity. And so now he calls a prophet and the prophet ushers in the king. But now when the prophet ushers in a king, it wasn't the king God chose. It was the king Israel wanted. Saul was what they wanted, but David was who God chose. David choose, uh, God chooses David, but David falls profoundly short of the king that would bring the justice and order to make all things right. He became a priest king, but this is not the priest king that God had intended because God wanted a nation of priests. And David, who would have been the paradigm, did fell profoundly short of it. Then we see now he has a son, his son Absalom, and then he has another son, Solomon. He has many sons, but these two sons hold center stage in the grand story of what's happening because Absalom um, defected from David, separated from David, 
um, committed treachery and treason against David. And in the end, Absalom was killed, but then his son came. And his son, um, his son, sorry, after Absalom was Solomon. Solomon was chosen to be king, and this is where covenant continues. It continued to Solomon. While Solomon was a wise man, Solomon was stuck in his own ways, stuck in monies and honeys. <laughs> and as a result of monies and honeys, Solomon fell into compromise. He was wise, but he compromised. And because he compromised, he lost the kingdom of Israel. Ah, but he kept one part of the kingdom. One portion of the kingdom he kept to Judah. So Judah was his. And then, so, so, so he keeps Judah and he passes Judah on to Rehoboam. But then we have Absalom's son now and Solomon's son. Northern region was taken over by Absalom's son. So look now, David's family has been split north and the south. The north, we call Israel. The south, we call Judah. And then we read through the book of Kings because what was promised to David was that there would be a king who would come to make all things right. But we've been reading through the book of Kings starting from Solomon. And then we're seeing now a switch back and forth. I hope you notice it. We're seeing a switch back and forth. The king of Israel, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel. And they've all fallen profoundly short. I've always said this and I say it over and over again, and you'll probably hear it over and over again, that the book of Kings should really be called not those kings. The book of Kings should be called not those kings because it would seem by the measure of the prophets who held them accountable that these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see this over and over and over and over. This kingdom that God is establishing, this justice that God is establishing, this rule that God is establishing through these people, somehow they ain't it. There are no heroes in the book of Kings. The book of Kings is a bunch of tragedies. This nation of Israel was supposed to be a nation separate. Like this nation of Israel should have been a nation that would have brought the justice of God, the heart of God, the righteousness of God. The nation of Israel was the one that was called to be the nation of priests, to be mediators of God, to show the world what God is like and how God rules. And yet here we are. Here we are, family, seeing Israel not too far from where Israel was in the book of Judges, where there was no king in Israel. Oh, not those kings. There was a remnant of kingship, but not those kings. And if there's anything that I want you to pay attention to, this is what the Lord is compelling me and convicting me with. Convicted me with this is this verse that pops in over and over and over. And I was highlighting it as I was going. I was highlighting, I tried to highlight as many times as I could as I was reading it. But starting from chapter 15, or sorry, from what we read from the scripture. And he did evil on the side of the Lord, verse 18. And he did evil on the side of the Lord. Verse 24, Pekka, Pekahia, and he did evil on the side of the Lord, Pekka, and he did evil on the side of the Lord. We can, we can go to Jotham. We can go to Jehoaz in chapter 13, verse 2, and he did evil on the side of the Lord. Verse 11, 
Jehoash, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Guys, we can we can keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. And we see that all these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord, not those kings. I hope you see a least common denominator. All these kings, for some reason, have done evil in the sight of the Lord. And some of it, man, we would define as evil. We just saw a king who ripped babies out of the out of women's wombs and killed them. That is evil. Oh man, there's nothing evil like that. That's evil. This is this is the chosen people of God who've reached this level of moral depravity. Right? But notice in this text this continuity that he did evil inside the Lord. We see it in, in verse, verse uh, chapter 11. We read it in chapter 11. We read it in chapter 12. We read it in chapter 13. We see it in verse 2, right? We see it in verse 11. We see it about all these kings. They all did evil on the side of the Lord, evil on the side of the Lord, evil on the side of the Lord. But notice that every time it says that they did evil on the side of the Lord, it says for many of them, the least common denominator, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Who had made Israel sin. Verse 11. Jehoash. And he did evil on the side of the Lord. And he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. The son of Nebat. Who made Israel sin. Huh. We see a least common denominator there. In chapter 15. Verse 18. And he did evil on the side of the Lord. He did not depart all his days. From the sins of of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Chapter 15, verse 24, and he did evil on the side of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Huh. And he did evil on the side of the Lord. Verse 28, Pekah, and he did evil on the side of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. If you're reading this, you have to be asking the question, what did Nebat do? Sorry, what did Jeroboam do? Right? You, you, you should be asking that question. What did Jeroboam do? Because apparently what Jeroboam did is a big deal. Are y'all with me? Are y'all with me? What did Jeroboam do? What is the sin of Jeroboam? Because somehow the sin keeps coming up. It keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. Well, we got to go back to the beginning when they split up. And if we go back to the beginning where they split up, go to first Kings. I know we don't usually bounce around, but just to give you context, because I want to make sure you guys get this because this is what we're going to end with. If you go to first Kings chapter 14, we read it already. But if you go to first Kings chapter 14, what was the sin of Jeroboam? Let's go to verse seven. And in verse seven, it says, go tell Jeroboam is the prophet now. Who's going to go, who's being told to go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David. This is where they split up and gave it to you. And, and yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, who followed me with all his heart to do what was right in his eyes. But you have done more evil. Notice now how God sees it. You have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. The sins of Jeroboam. The sin of Jeroboam was the same sin that we saw in Exodus when they built a golden calf to worship because Moses had been gone for just a little too long. When Moses was gone for a little too long, they said, man, Moses must be dead. Let us find, let us build a God for ourselves that we may worship. And so by consequence, what did he do? Um, Aaron capitulated to the requests of the people. He acquiesced to their requests. And in doing so, they built a golden calf. And we saw the consequence of that. And now we see once more Jeroboam, who was called by God, was given Israel in the split, was given Israel. When Rehoboam took the South Judah, Jeroboam took the North Israel, those 10 tribes. And rather than worship the Lord God who gave him the word and the promise to serve under his authority and his rule, Jeroboam decided we're going to serve under a different rule. I've argued this before, that Jeroboam fell into what the children of Israel fell into in at Mount Sinai. You see, at Mount Sinai, there was a fear of the Lord and a separation from his presence to the point that the people themselves had even asked. Remember this, that they had even asked, speak to Moses for us and allow Moses to speak to us. Moses became a prophet, not out of God's volition, but out of the people's desire not to encounter him directly. The people separated themselves from God and creating a distance from God. The prophet was the God's contingency plan because God never intended to call a prophet. He called a prophet because the people remained distant from him. And in doing so now, God had to speak to Moses and then Moses spoke to the people. Go back to that reading rant. We talked about that before. And now we find ourselves here in the text. where Jeroboam is doing what the children of Israel did then. So what did the children of Israel do then? You see, the golden calf was an image of a Canaanite god. It was a Baal, an idol. And what some people sometimes get wrong, and I want to make sure people understand this because I think there's a misunderstanding about idol worship in the scriptures. People think that people are worshiping the statues. They do not worship the statues. They worship what the statues represent. They worship what the statues embody. Worship was never simply a thing that they showed up to a temple to do and to kind of, you know, worshiping this idol. That's not what they did. They worshiped what the idol represented, meaning 
They submitted to what the idol, the spirit behind the idol. And if anybody remembers what I told you before, is they had a deep understanding of what the spiritual is. We're the ones who become so unspiritual, we don't understand what the spiritual is. That the spiritual is just a system of thinking. It's a system. It's an intelligent system. It's a manipulative system, but it's a system of thinking that manipulates your current decisions and your behaviors. We all operate under spirits. <laughs> we make spirits sound so uh, mystical, but there's a spirit. And the spirit that governed the golden calf was a spirit of sexuality, money, and power. The golden calf represented sexuality, money, and power. It was about sexual liberation, sexual freedom, um, um, economic power, and influence, and political and military might. That is what the golden calf represented. So when they say that they worshipped it, what that means is they submitted to the spirit. And they allowed that spirit to govern them. The celebration that they do in worshiping the idol was simply to exercise and to articulate their submission to those things. That is what the calves represented. Different gods represented different spirits. And these spirits represented different things. And these things were what influenced their decisions and their behaviors and their activities fail. And so what Jeroboam did was, is he brought those idols back to Israel. Why? If you go back and you read that chapter, maybe you missed that read and rant, go back and read that read and rant because what that read and rant exposes to you is that because they could not go to Jerusalem, remember, it was split. You had Judah in the south, you had Israel in the north. The capital of Judah remained Jerusalem where the temple was. The capital of the north became Samaria. And because they did not have a temple, they needed something to worship. Not realizing that God was never confined to a temple. But what they did was, is they superimposed the worship of God with the worship of these idols. Now what they're doing is, is they're infusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. They're, conf they're, they're conflating now the spirit of God with the spirit of Baal. And they have made the spirit of Baal, which is the cultural stream in that time. That is Canaan then, and they're superimposing that cultural way of thinking onto their worship. It is a pagan worship that they want to ascribe to Yahweh and to God. And that upsets God deeply. Because what God knows is that it's those very spirits that are causing the demise of humanity. It is the me, myself, and I. It is the ego. It is the id. It is money, sexuality. It is power. It is influence. It's all these things that govern us today. And those things that govern the people then is what led to everything that is wrong, everything that is impure, everything that is sick. And it made God angry because God will not be compromised. And unfortunately, unlike the rest of the people, 
God put his name on them. Can I just do a little quick pause on here? Is that don't ever think for a moment that God putting his name on you is just a privilege. God putting his name on you is a responsibility. It's a responsibility. And I think for many of us, when we take the name of Jesus and we ascribe it to ourselves, we don't understand the kind of responsibility that we bear because it is our lives now that represent to the world who Jesus is. It is our lives now, the things we say, the way we act, the things we do, the way we move, the way we live, the way we, the, everything we do, everything that emanates out of us should reflect Jesus Christ. And you wonder why God sometimes has a way that he deals with the people that he puts his name on because his name is on those people. God will not have his name be disrespected. And unfortunately for many of us, God has called us and because God has called us, there are things that we won't be able to get away with that God, that God will let somebody else get away with. You ever notice that there are things that you'll do that your unsafe friend does the same thing and you're, you're the one that suffers the penalty for it? The reason why is because God's got his name on you. <laughs> and because he has his name on you, because you are to represent him, God wants to disciple you into becoming like him. He wants his, his glory, his righteousness, his rule, his justice to emanate out of you. And so that's what God does. So when the children of Israel compromise, God doesn't play with them. And every one of these kings compromised Israel. And because Jeroboam brought the golden calves and built the golden calves, Jeroboam sinned and caused Israel to sin. Give me five minutes, guys. I'm going to go a few minutes over. So I want to make sure I close this well. The evil, and I said this yesterday and I'll say it again. The evil is compromise. That's the evil. Because with compromise comes everything afterwards. And the unfortunate reality is, is that in today's church, we don't seek to live distinct. We seek to find how we can be congruent with culture. Not realizing that the Christian faith is profoundly counter-cultural. There are golden calves all through culture. There are golden calves all through society. We have golden calves today and the unfortunate reality is many of us have built those golden calves into our churches. Yesterday we read about Jehu and Jehu bloodbath, bloodbath, bloodbath. There's one thing that Jehu was honored for. He was honored for eradicating Baal in Israel. But then Jehu's end wasn't pretty. Jehu didn't end well because the scriptures tell us that while Jehu eradicated the forces of Baal in Israel, he still walked in the ways of Jeroboam and did not leave from his father's sins, the sins of his father. There are many of us who have grown up in what I would call cultural churches. I call them Canaanite churches. It's going to sound tough. This is not an indictment on the body of Christ, but more a word of, of, of warning. 
that for many of us, what we know as church is really just a form of culture. There's some of us, we grew up in churches where you were told that to be Christian is to be Republican and to be Republican is to be Christian. There are those of you that grew up in churches that told you that, you know, to be Christian is to be socialist and to be socialist is to be Christian because they followed a cultural stream. There are some of us that grew up in churches where we were told to follow this way of thinking and this way of living, even though it wasn't scripturally founded, but only culturally founded. And because we submitted to the culture of the time, rather than resisting the culture of the time, we now have a church that looks like Canaan. And they wonder why the church has no influence, why the church has no power. The reason why is because, guess what? The people who are far from Jesus, they look and they see the church. They not only see the hypocrisy of the church, they see that the church has nothing that's interesting to them. If it follows the rest of the cultural stream, the rest of the cultural stream, there's hurt, there's pain, there's brokenness, there's everything that isn't good. And yet now the church looks like that. So why would I be compelled to go to the church? Why would I be compelled to come here? And yet this is what burdens God's heart. This is what breaks God's heart. Jehu was ready to call out the satanic forces, the demonic forces, but he wouldn't call out the sins of his fathers in his house. And there are many good things we can take from our fathers, but we should not follow after the path of our fathers if those paths were not aligned with the scripture. And yet, what does the scripture tell us? King after king after king after king after king did what Jeroboam did. And so now we have a cultural Christianity where people are so powerless now that prayer is not good enough. We have a cultural Christianity now where it's prayer and sage. We have a cultural Christianity now where it's prayer and horoscope. We have a cultural Christianity now where it's prayer and new age. It's Jesus and something. And see, this is the problem because we see the pillars of culture still there. And it says that even those who who didn't follow the sins of, of Jeroboam, they allow the people to burn sage in the high places. And yet in doing so and in permitting so caused Israel to sin. There are people doing witchcraft in the church and serving Jesus. Cultural Christians. When Christianity is cultural, you can influence and infiltrate and and infuse anything with it. There are people in the occult and still going to church on Sunday. There's still people who submit to new age thinking and, and psychics and horoscopes and all these things. I know it's making some people uncomfortable. I know, I know, because it might be you not realizing that maybe you have now allowed something of no power to replace something of power. And God is upset. He is offended because what you say when you go to those things is what you're saying is, is you're saying, Jesus, you are not enough. God, you are not enough. You're saying, God, you're good, but I need some other stuff too. 
you're good, but I still need the horoscope to tell me where I'm going. You're 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 good, Jesus. I yeah, you you know, you 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 help me every now and then. However, I need to see what the stars say about my destiny and my future. No, I know what your word says, but you know what, you know what, don't worry about that. I I, I get it. And you know, I'm not at peace, but you know what? Uh, I'm gonna burn sage so I can I can change the the spirit of the room, not realizing that I have the, your spirit within me. I, you know what? Forget your spirit. You know, let me just let me let me try to do. Do you see the compromise of our church today? Golden calves. Every one of them followed the sins of Jeroboam. Followed the sins of Jeroboam. This is a tough place to end today. Because we know the tension is resolved. But when you're reading this, I hope you understand that now you're coinciding what it meant for this book to be not these kings. When we say, and we're reading because we're finishing up Second Kings, probably in the next two days, so we'll come back on Monday. We're finishing up. I hope you guys see this. That what made them not these kings was not that they didn't have the ability. Was not that they, they, they didn't have the intelligence and the education. It wasn't that they had the strength and the power. It was that they compromised the heart of God and the will of God. It's not these kings. And yet even at the end of this book, when we read Chronicles, we're going to read the Chronicles of the Kings. And after we read Chronicles, we're going to read through the prophets and we're going to read through all these other stories and these narratives. And we're going to go back and we're going to see that while it's not these kings, there's still a promise of a king who would make all things right, who would establish his justice and his rule and his kingdom will not look like any kingdom you've ever seen. His kingdom does not look like the United States. His kingdom does not look like the Hebrew Israelites. His kingdom does not look like the European Union. His kingdom is something profoundly different. And yet through his kingdom, he's making all things new. He's making all things right. And with his kingdom, by his rule that he establishes it, that we will all be made one in him, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more strife, where the earth will be made new again, where we will all see life eternal. That is the kingdom we anticipate. But that's not the kingdom we see here. Father, I thank you for your words of conviction, Father, that we often sometimes read your word and we miss that this wasn't meant to inform us. It was meant to convict us, to correct us. Yes, often we're left in a tension, but Lord, the tension leaves us in a place of dependence. Say, Lord, we need you. And yet we have hope even in the midst of that tension because we know, Lord, that you are making all things new, that you are making everything right. So thank you, Father. Thank you for each and every person who's here. Thank you for each and every person who's participating in this time. Lord, I pray that this would be transformative for them. But as we begin to see what the real story of your word is and what you are really doing and what you have really said in your word and, and what you have promised to accomplish and have already accomplished and are accomplishing, Father, that, that Lord, we would uh, take hope and rest in that, that we'd be strengthened in it, that we'd be compelled to move in it, Father. Thank you for what you're doing. Oh, bless us today, Lord. Let us remove the calves, the golden calves in our lives. Let us pull down all the things that were 
incorporating in our lives that compromise our faith in you. Father, be king in our hearts so that you can be king in our homes, so that you can be king in our cities and be king in our nations. And that we can say that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we say that in Jesus' name. Amen.